You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with Sean Calloway, who is using Django and Python to help build an internal web app that's responsible for managing their infrastructure. Sean, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, happy to have you on. So do you want to start us off by introducing yourself and letting people know a little bit more about what you've built? Sure. Um, as you said, I'm Sean Calloway. I'm a senior systems engineer at REI, the outdoor retailer. I have a really long time infrastructure background and less so as a developer. But over the past you know, handful of roles, I've been building a lot of internal tools. And here at REI, we had the need to kind of track our massively growing infrastructure, whether it's you know, internal VMs or physical um, blades that are in our data center, uh, what have you. We needed to do, have a better way to, one, uh, correlate the server to its owner and its director so that the director actually knew how many servers he had running. And then also um, kind of track the metrics for that. Um, we have a fairly severe problem with over-provisioning. Some folks might ask for, you know, servers with, you know, 16 cores and a terabyte of RAM when they only need probably three or four cores and, you know, let's say 12 gigs of RAM. Um, so this tool, in addition to kind of acting as a, a correlation of owner to server, also um, provides us a way to kind of do some showback reporting to directors as to um, what services they have over provisioned and how much that theoretically costs the company. Okay. So this project here, is this something that you've developed on your own or do you have a small team working on it? Uh, it started on my own. The initial database that was created just to do the correlation um, was created by uh, another engineer in our client engineering department who built it as in um, MS SQL uh, and kind of just was like, hey, yeah, you can use Internet Explorer and ActiveX controls to view this data, uh, which was very problematic considering that we have quite a bit of uh, Mac usage in the company, especially among management and directors. Um, so that wasn't really a, a viable option. Um, my senior manager uh, approached me uh, to see if I'd be willing to take this on, um, you know, building kind of a front end for the tool. So um, I did that um, quickly, kind of uh, building a web front end for this database. And then as feature creep started, I pulled in another uh, team member or two. Um, and we all kind of do this just in addition to our uh, standard day-to-day uh, -day activities. Nice. So maybe just to like paint some type of picture of like the number of events going through this system. Like I know this is not like well, how many like web visitors you get to it, but like, you know, like how many VMs do you track with this app and, you know, things like that? Yeah, we track about 1,200 VMs or so with it. Um, I mean, some of those are physical boxes, but, you know, that many machines with it. We also do have, uh, you know, probably about 100 page views uh, a day for just regular users. And our REST API um, 
gets probably about uh, 100 hits an hour or so. So it's not hugely trafficked um, compared to publicly available sites on the internet, but um, it's decent enough to where uh, if it's not working right, we hear about it pretty quickly. Oh yeah, for sure. So what motivated you to use Django and Python in the end? Uh, I've been using Python for years for various different scripting projects and um, you know, kind of just internal tooling that systems engineers may need. I'd never actually built a web app with it. I had done Flask in the past to kind of um, provide some web dashboarding for um, pulling different APIs together and, you know, recreating old tools for folks who wanted to, you know, look at a web interface that looked familiar to them, but, you know, switching over to a new data backend or something like that. Um, but I pretty quickly found out that Flask wasn't the right choice for this because of our existing backend database. We needed um, Active Directory logins for this. And so Django really seemed to kind of hit my feature marks of um, something that I could allow me to get this out quickly. You know, I think I had less than a week uh, and it got jammed into the middle of an existing sprint to uh, you know, kind of get this out. So I needed something that would help me rapidly deploy this thing. Uh, well-documented, easy to learn, and then also provided uh, really solid third-party integrations for things like uh, using Active Directory authentication or you know, accessing a MS SQL database in the back end. Oh, wow. Yeah, getting this up off the ground in one week while still doing regular stuff, like that's really, really impressive. So was that getting to the point where it was like totally workable, but still like barely MVP status or just internally testing at that point? Uh, it worked fairly well. I mean, at that point in time, it was basically just a read-only view of the database with some, you know, basic searching, um, which is all at that time was just passed um, kind of as like a, you know, just an ORM query. But um, it was workable. You know, people could log into it. They can do their searches. And then, you know, all the feature requests came in. So I'd say, you know, MVP1, basically. Right. So are you taking advantage of some of the things that Django gives you in terms of like the admin interface and dealing with user authentication, stuff like that? We weren't at the time. When we first started off, there was no real need for that. All of our authentication came in through Active Directory. And because it was a read-only interface, there were basically no permissions needed. It was, you can look at this thing. If you, know, if you have a valid set of credentials, you can log in, you can use everything the app has. That quickly changed as we needed to provide a way to update systems as you know they became decommissioned or, or what have you. So we started basically just doing group mappings using the, um, the AD authentication package we were using. So we were using AD groups to map them to you know the super user group basically. Um, and then we were just doing simple permissions checks of, you know, if user is super user, then let them do this. Uh, that has expanded some now. We are starting to get more, um, as you know, more actual RBAC involved, as we want other people to be able to add new hosts to the DB or um, edit and update them 
And then most recently, you know, we're starting to tie this into our build pipelines and build tools for, um, you know, building new hosts. So we're um, needing authentication for API users or API keys. So in that case, would something like inside of your CI service, you'd actually make an API call to your service there to add something new? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're, uh, our build process, um, specifically for my team, which is more Unix and Linux focused, is uh, Ansible based. You know, we do clones from uh, VMware using uh, an Ansible playbook and a series of Ansible roles. So, you know, one of the things that that does at the end is it kicks off a, um, a REST call to this app, which um, fills in all the information it needs for a new host based on the information that was provided in the ticket that was cut for having a new um, server built. Interesting. So how does that stay in sync with, like, I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of Ansible, by the way, but the way I've used it in the past was, you know, I would use their static hosts file. So it's very good for managing like, you know, a couple, a handful of servers where, you know, things aren't changing all the time where you just put the IP address or DNS, you know, host name in that hosts file. Mm -hmm. But in this case, like you would need to maybe keep that in sync with your database backend. Like what have you done to do that? The other member of my team actually is working on an Ansible patching project as uh, part of, you know, uh, his set of responsibilities. And one of the things that he is doing is um, using this to provide uh, an inventory plugin for Ansible AWX, the open source upstream version of Ansible Tower. Um, and we've also used it to create uh, dynamic inventories so we can basically pull down and group by, um, you know, use a director as host groups. So we can say, you know, all of Chris's hosts are then they, uh, the app will provide that back as a single host group. Very cool. Yeah, it's pretty neat. Sorry? I was, I was going to say, it's still very much a work in progress as far as uh, tying that in as an Ansible in, um, inventory source, but it's, um, it's definitely there and the data is there, so we can use that nicely. Nice. So going back to your app itself, is this, or would you classify this as like a monolithic app, or do you have it broken up into a couple of different microservices? It's definitely a monolith. I think Django is, is more suited to the monolith approach than, say, Flask or something like that. Because, you know, each time you spin up a, a container, you'd be bringing all the, the Django stuff with you. But um, ours is definitely monolithic. And, you know, with only two team members, that seems to be pretty much the right way. You know, one of us is always reviewing the other person's pull requests. The velocity of deploying microservices isn't really going to increase over deploying the, the monolith. Right. Now, do you take advantage of something like Django apps within your monolith or no? Yes. Um, we started with just, you know, a hosts app that manages the hosts. And then we uh, started adding on to there as we started pulling in metrics from like InfluxDB. Um, we added one on as we started um, doing some active directory lookups of directors as they change to make sure that they get their automatically generated reports emailed to the correct email address as listed in active directory and things like that. So we probably have three or four apps running currently right now. Okay. And that other one you just mentioned, is that like a dedicated reports app or is it just specific to that one type of reporting? Uh, it's specific to that one type of reporting. We're basically generating out only one type of report anyway. Um, it's going to be, you know, 
a list of um, all the hosts that a director owns um, using air quotes there and um, you know the costs associated with um, maintaining that fleet of hosts and uh, the utilization of those hosts compared to how it was um, provisioned right so now maybe it would be a good idea to like help us visualize what your app even is for like the web front end like Let's say you log in and you know to whatever VM you have or something like that. Do you just see like a dashboard of like the health of the system and like various like audits of what events pass through? Like, uh, give us a high level overview of that, please. Well, the main portion of the app is basically a a way to search for hosts. Um, it's kind of a standard search page when you first log in. One of the initial uh, desires that folks had was when they got a page in the middle of the night that so-and-so host was not performing correctly, um, that they could look up, you know, who to contact um, to, you know, help troubleshoot with that. Because just because it's a, you know, a Windows box doesn't mean the Windows engineer is uh, going to be able to troubleshoot the app that's running on it. So um, initially, it's just a, a standard search page. You can punch in your search criteria, which you know defaults to hostname. However, criteria is a dropdown, so you can search by um, manager, uh, application, director, um, and then we got a request for you know operating system. So you know as we started deprecating, say Windows Server 2008, um, people can pull up a list of all those hosts and then. Uh, you know, export that to an Excel sheet and start working through all those, making sure they get decommed properly um, and in the right amount of time. Um, there are a few other things that we have tied in there. So, you know, along the nav bar at the top, folks have the option to uh, look at our different uh, network shares that are available, which is another app that we have that um, my colleague Nate uh, implemented. Um, and fairly recently, there's a little bit of a profile uh, option, you know, on the far right, kind of standard, where it shows your username, where you can uh, generate and revoke API keys for yourself as well. Okay. So is this app mostly just generating text, like in like a table, like a paginated table form, or are there some charts and graphs as well, or no? Most of it's a paginated table through the web UI. We have uh, scheduled jobs that run that generate those report uh, reports. Um, we use uh, OpenPy Excel uh, to build out uh, Excel files, which include all those kind of charts and tables and things, um, as our data is is collected not in real time. Um, you know, Influx, and uh, we have a tie-in with a, a VMware. Uh, I think it's VROPS. Um, that you know, we pull for data. Uh, those are kind of used more for for dashboarding and things like that. We're more of uh, monthly report type generation stuff, as far as our charts and graphs. Oh, okay. So, do you have this app set up using Django te templates on the back end, then, with like just a tiny bit of JavaScript, or is it like a fully API based app with a JavaScript heavy front end? No, we're. Uh, I am absolutely terrible at JavaScript. It's uh, been something that I tweak just enough jQuery in to get a little bit of a better user experience, but um, it's all Django templates. Nice. And then overall, that, that runs quite fast, I would imagine, right? Like you can render all of this paginated data? 
Oh yeah, it's it's quick. We don't have any issues with uh, page load times. They're about as responsive as you'd hope. We had to do a little bit of tweaking of some uh, of the quarries that we built, but for the most part, um, they're very quick. Now for those tweaking of those queries, so for a reference here, I'm not like very much of a Django developer, but did you have to did you have to break out of their ORM to do that, or was that just something you just had to like add indexes to later? Uh, a lot of it was just, you know, doing some adding of indexes. Uh, we still use the ORM a lot, but uh, we use some prefetching um, when it was um, beneficial for us to do so. We do have a little bit more of normalized data now. So um, gathering up all the director information at the same time that we're gathering up um, the host information uh, was very beneficial to page load times. Okay. So when you say prefetching, do you mean like avoiding n plus one queries, or is there like a different terminology for that with Django? Um, that's an interesting question. There's actually a Django uh, method in the ORM called prefetch, and that's what we use. I am probably showing my naivete as a developer um, that uh, I don't I don't have a, I don't have a super answer for that. Right. So I guess maybe it would be like a comparable example would be if you're loading a list of users like in a paginated table and you wanted to maybe count all of a user's comments or posts or something like that, you may like preload all of those posts or comments as, as a part of the same query that gets the user. And then you're not like executing a count for every every individual thing after. Is that is that what's going on here? Yes. Uh... Django prefetch kind of grabs all that information ahead of time so that when I hit it again in the um, the table, you know, I hit that relation in the, not the table, in the template, uh, it's not doing another query there. It's already got it. Right. Very cool. So going back to your app a little bit, uh, you mentioned monolithic app, a couple of Django apps. Do you know offhand maybe roughly like number of lines of code in this app? We're at about 3,000 lines of code across 60 Python files or so. Um... You know, we have some supporting, you know, Kubernetes YAML and things like that that also exist, and uh, some Ansible playbooks that do some of our report generation, but they're really just calling uh, Django management commands. So nice. Yeah, we have much to discuss here. I just heard the word Kubernetes, so that should be fun at some point. But uh, for now, maybe let's just go over a little bit more about your tech stack, like outside of the deployment part, like. Are you using Postgres on the back end? What about Celery and Redis, like stuff like that? So um, our tech stack is currently in flux. Um, as I kind of mentioned a little bit earlier, this all started being a web front end for a um, Microsoft SQL database. Uh, so you know, we initially were tied into a pre-existing database that you know we had to run InspectDB on to build our models and ensure we didn't touch it. But, you know, we then still needed to maintain a little bit of information on our own. Uh, so we are shifting away from that to a purely Postgres database. Um, this is giving us time to kind of rebuild our models in a little cleaner of a fashion uh, and normalize some of the data that wasn't. Um, you know, things like directors were not initially normalized and, you know, applications and we just found out that there's more information that we want to store in the database that we haven't. So we're shifting purely to Postgres. Um, we don't use Celery or Redis right now. Um, 
though we have a few use cases where we keep toying with the idea. Um, we allow users to uh, update uh, hosts by uploading an Excel sheet, um, and some of those are getting big. Uh, none of them have, none of them outside of testing, I should say, have actually, you know, uh, hit the nginx timeout. But um, we're concerned that they're going to, so uh, we're toying with bringing in a salary job to actually process that Excel sheet after they upload it. Right. So speaking of maybe Celery and Nginx timeouts, like what version of Python and Django do you use? Because I know, what is it, Python 3.8? It has like an ability to do like async await type of stuff without Celery. Yes, we're on Python 3.7 right now, though changing to 3.8 would be trivial. Um, we are using Django 2.1, unfortunately, which is because the, uh, the SQL package that we brought in uh, has not been updated since. There's actually some very interesting stuff going on in the Django community with Microsoft that uh, trying to get uh, SQL support into mainline Django itself, which is kind of fun to watch. But as we're moving away from it, we care less and less. So we'll be moving to uh, the latest LTS uh, once we get um, fully migrated over to Postgres. Nice. So you mentioned having Nginx too then. Do you just run that in front of GUnicorn or whatever web server that you use? Yes, in a way. That's definitely how we started the deployment. It was Nginx uh, passing off to GUnicorn, uh, which then you know served up our Django app. Um, we've moved since to containerized deployments, but we still use Nginx, interestingly enough, to uh, serve up static files, and then as well as providing a little bit of um, extra logging and, and things like that that GUnicorn doesn't do quite as nicely, I think. Right. What about other like little but somewhat important things like redirecting HTTP to HTTPS or maybe removing like www.example.com to example.com? Yep. That was definitely in our original Django config file. Um, Kubernetes Ingress now does that for us, so we don't have to worry about that at the at the app, but uh, yeah, that's uh, all very nice. SSL termination is uh, pretty important, especially at uh, when we are passing logins. Right. So you mentioned Kubernetes dealing with, uh, you know, using Nginx, I guess, for the ingress there. Do you have that like integrated with Let's Encrypt then for the SSL certs? No, uh, REI has an internal uh, certificate authority, so we are using those uh, certs that they provide us. It's actually kind of the only manual process left in our deployment pipeline, but we get two-year certs, so it's once every two years we have to you know, submit some renewal tickets and generate a CSR, and then you know apply that once we get the cert back. But um, as it's an internally available thing, we use the internal CA. Nice. That must have been fun, right? Setting up your own certificate authority. Yeah, I imagine somebody had a lot of fun when they did that. I think it's kind of built into the Microsoft stack a little better. Um, and I know our rights management folks are heavily integrated into Active Directory and all that. So um, I, I would assume that that would probably be a little more trivial. But um, that's, I know in, in my world, setting up a CA would be a, a non-trivial event. Yeah, because I have a buddy who, who runs a very big Ansible project and he has like a PKI role where it, you know, it sets up a certificate authority and switching between cert types. And it was like something like 6,000 lines of 
of shell scripting with Ansible on top of that to get all of that set up. It was uh, a lot of work. <laughs> so going back to your tech stack here, mentioned using Kubernetes. Do you use Docker in development as well? Yeah, we um, have you know Docker Compose file set up. Um, so we're using basically the same container that we'd get in production or you know on our, our QA servers as well. Um, except we're passing, you know, we're, we're mounting our local directory as uh, the app source directory so we can see changes in real time. Um, there's actually a really cool tutorial about um, dockerizing your Postgres setup on, I believe it's testdriven.io. I think I've seen that one, but it had Flask as an example, right? Uh, there's a Flask one and there's a Django one as well, um, which is pretty great because it kind of evolves over time. So you kind of learn what you're doing is like you first just dockerize your Django app and then, you know, you add, um, you know, a Postgres container and you just keep, keep going and going and going. But it also is really nice because it talks about separating your config from your um, actual settings files. So, you know, you're passing in stuff uh, as environment variables, which is, you know, part of the total 12 factor app thing that a lot of folks are working to get towards. Um, and it's just great because, you know, it keeps secrets out of your source control, which is always a plus. Yeah, it's really interesting when I hear people using Kubernetes because I always like to talk about, well, or, or ask them like, when you read some blog posts or you see some something on Hacker News, everyone makes it seem like you just install Kubernetes, you flip the switch, and like suddenly everything is magnificent. Like you're at web scale, horizontally scaling is no problem, SSL is awesome, like you know stateful stuff is non-existent, like and it's a perfect world. Like what, what was your experience like actually setting all of this up and getting it running? Well, we stood up Kubernetes for a separate project. Um, that was just kind of one of the things that our team uh, had to build and support just running a single app in a whole kubernetes cluster seemed kind of wasteful and i think it had already containerized uh, this app at that point in time um, but i'd never you know actually done my own kubernetes deployments it's not the most trivial thing in the world either setting up the cluster uh, especially when you're building an on-prem one and not you know using like eks or aks or GKE, um, you know, a cloud-hosted Kubernetes setup. There's actually quite a bit of, of work you have to do um, getting, you know, traffic to it, uh, your Kubernetes cluster. We had to talk to our network team about getting our F5 load balancers pointed at this. So, you know, we have a, a VIP that brings in everything off of port 80 and 443 to a certain IP address and then shoots it to all my worker nodes. Um, Got to deal with stuff like that. If you use persistent storage, uh, on-prem persistent storage offerings are um, not, it's a non-trivial deal as well. You can see that the, the landscape on that changes a lot. Uh, there's new projects to support persistent storage every day. Luckily, our persistent storage requirements are pretty light. I think I have a, like a one gig persistent volume set up. So we're able to use like an NFS share for that without any problems. But, um, you know, it's a bit of work figuring out how to build your, you know, kubeyaml properly so that um, when you do an upgrade, your pods don't actually shut down. Um, you know, dealing with, you know, migrations at when you're deploying a new version, um, figuring out where and when to run all that stuff is, is still a little tricky. And, you know, I don't even know that we have the right answer for some of those, but um, it works for us. So it's good enough, I suppose. 
Yeah. Do you know like roughly maybe how much time you spent getting all of that hooked up to the point where you can actually deploy stuff with, I guess, zero downtime and migrations and all that stuff? Well, that definitely took a lot longer. I mean, we got to the point where we were deploying and we're like, yeah, this is great. And then I guess it took us a little while to notice that there was probably about a 30 second delay between when the deployment, you know, the Jenkins job said it was done and the web app was actually available again. You know, I think the first few times we tried, we just delayed long enough, you know, whether it was high-fiving each other that, hey, it's actually working on Kubernetes now or or what have you and actually hitting the page again. You know, the time that it took to get a working deployment and the time to get the zero downtime deployment was a little longer. There's enough documentation out there about upgrade strategies and, and things like that um, and uh, pod disruption budgets that's um, definitely worth looking at. Um, and, you know, folks are, are posting new blog th- posts every day about how to do this a little better than they were before. Right. So going back to what you said before, like, it sounds like all of your servers are hosted on-prem, right? Uh, for the most part, uh, you know, REI does do a good bit in AWS as well. But um, one of my roles and responsibilities is dealing with on-prem infrastructure. Um, so that was our, our one of our primary targets. We have a... a a pretty modern data center as far as hardware goes. Um, so it's all sitting there and powered on and we're paying for you know power and cooling already. So why not use it? So this app itself, the internal web app you've built, like what type of hardware runs this, this app? It runs on top of uh, well, the Kubernetes cluster that it runs on. Uh, all runs on virtual machines that run on um, HP blades, uh, like Gen 9 blades, I think. Um, I'm, do you know like high level stats, like what type of CPU it might have and like um, the amount of memory you allocate to that container? Uh, the containers themselves are actually fairly light. Um, they get about a gig and a half of two gigs per RAM on average, and they can burst up. Um, we run a couple replicas, so, uh, the traffic is load balanced a little bit, not only just for dealing with burstiness, but you know, uh, preventing downtime when we if we have a failure um you know something 500s and crashes real hard to t- kill the entire pod we still can serve everybody else until the new pod is spun up um they're actually fairly cpu light until we start doing report generation um in which we spin up actually a new pod to do that and that one gets a about uh, about four CPUs and is sitting closer to six gigs, um, really just to get the job done as fast as possible. So we have some concurrency going there. Right. And you think in the future, if you decide to introduce Celery into the mix, you'll give that a pretty beefy uh, box to churn through some work? It depends. Um, you know, we're, we're doing a pretty good job of kind of keeping an eye on the pods as well as kind of letting them have some free reign in QA. I think when we first started, we basically gave it, gave it no limits because I was one of like two people using this particular cluster. And then, you know, uh, taking a look at some Grafana graphs of, of how much it actually needed, then I, I right-sized it before it went into production. Right. Now, I guess we can maybe uh, talk about that a little bit. You mentioned Grafana. So what tools do you use for, for logging and metrics and all that stuff? So... We at REI are a Splunk customer, uh, so our app logs all get sent off to Splunk, um, where we do some 
correlation and some error reporting. You know, we don't care about absolutely every error that happens, more of error rate. We do kind of log um, extra things like uh, authentication failures, as well as uh, we log when people search for something and don't find anything uh, because we want to kind of improve our user experience. So uh, the rate at which we also get uh, zero result uh, searches is something that we will actually alert on just to make sure our backend data source didn't go away on us. We don't manage that. We have a DBA team who actually manages that MS SQL server. So if something happens over there, um, we aren't always the first people to figure out, find out about it. For the rest of our stack monitoring Kubernetes itself, we use uh, Prometheus, um, and uh, that ties into Grafana as well uh, to provide us some kind of dashboarding of not only the clusters, but the app itself. Nice. Yeah, Kubernetes has some uh, pretty interesting options for that type of that type of stuff. It does. There are unfortunately like sometimes too many options, so you kind of get lost in the weeds of which one's the best choice. And sometimes, you know, just kind of going with uh, the currently popular choice, even if it's not the best choice, is a good place to start. Um, you know, I think we went with um, we use a bit of uh, um, Rancher's stack. Um, to you know, stand up and manage our, our Kubernetes clusters and tie in Active Directory into uh, Kubernetes RBAC. Um, and they offer, um, you know, you can basically install monitoring on your clusters with a, a single push button. And that brings you get, brings in Prometheus and Grafana for you. So when we were still debating about, well, should we monitor with this? And like, well, maybe this tool's a little better for our needs. I'm like, well, hey, I'm, we're gonna just turn this on in the meantime until we make a decision so that we have something because something is better than nothing. And uh, we ended up tweaking what we did with that a little bit, but we ended up just kind of realizing that we really liked the Prometheus-Grafana combination. Yeah, I think it's a, a really solid combo too. I use it in some projects. I really, I, I don't know. There's just something about the Grafana UI that I just like. Oh, yeah. It's hard to explain it, but it's just it's just like very pleasant to look at and interact with. Yeah, I think their their UI and UX is probably one of the best out there, having dealt with other dashboarding systems from other monitoring tools and whatnot. But uh, I've been a Grafana fan for a couple roles now, uh, even when we were doing infrastructure monitoring and kind of tied it into to a Grafana dashboard. It was or a number of Grafana dashboards, but it's solid. Right. So maybe just uh, rewinding back to your self-hosted servers here, or VMs even, so what, what distro of Linux do you run on them? Um, we are a Red Hat shop. However, because we're kind of moving to a more cattle approach with our um, you know, Docker nodes, and including Kubernetes uh, workers and uh, master nodes, we're using uh, CentOS for that. Okay. And earlier, you, you kind of mentioned that you use some components of Rancher, I guess, to, to set all of this up. Like, how do you... How do you go from these servers being empty to being set up to run Kubernetes and you know whatever other workloads you want on them? Like, do you use Ansible to configure that or something else? Uh, there are better ways than what we did, which we now know, and we're actually kind of looking at as we get to like you know MVP two of our Kubernetes infrastructure. But uh, we, you know we took basically our standard VM build process. Um, 
you know, kicked out however many nodes we need that are sized the way we want them. Um, and then uh, in Rancher, you can go ahead and create a cluster. And then once you create that, you know, choosing kind of what networking backend you want to use, Calico or Canal or Flannel or, or what have you, um, it gives you a basically a single command to run on each of these uh, hosts. It's, you know, a, a pseudo Docker command. And you pass it flags based on what uh, role you want it to have, whether it's going to be an etcd node, a control plane node, or worker node, or some combination of the two, generally like an etcd and control plane node. Um, so you just take that, run it on the host, and it starts basically reports back to Rancher, uh, and Rancher starts telling it, hey, you need to install all these extra services uh, as Docker containers to basically build up your nodes and then you know eventually your cluster. It's a, a really nice way to get a cluster off the ground quickly, whether you're doing it in your home lab or you're doing it, uh, you know, in an on-prem corporate environment. Nice. So I, I have some experience using tools like Terraform to, you know, set up infrastructure on a cloud provider, but I've never used it for like local VMs. Do you use anything like that? Or is there even like an option to do that? That's actually what our MVP2 is going to look like. Um, we're, me and another engineer separate from this uh, Django project are currently looking at using Terraform to manage all of this. Um, not only are there uh, VMware providers for Terraform, there is a Rancher 2 provider, so we can directly interface with the cluster. We can create node templates, uh, clone those off, you know, basically build a cluster just saying, hey, you know, I want three of these uh, Rancher OS master nodes and, you know, let's say five worker nodes. Uh, here's your IP address pool to pull from. Go nuts. Um, and it will build you up and spit you back a cluster. Uh, that's something we're still POCing, um, but it's uh, it definitely looks like it's a, a pretty good answer for doing a little more infrastructure as code as far as that goes. And also opening up um, other OS options. You know, we're, we're looking at Rancher OS and, and things like that as well. Interesting. Yeah, I haven't looked into uh, Rancher OS yet, but man, I cannot speak highly enough of Terraform. And, you know, they're not like a sponsor of the podcast or whatever, but it was one of those things I just feel like once I started using that, like, I don't know how long it's been, like 18 months ago or something, it was almost as eye-opening as using Ansible for the first time. It's like, holy crap, you can actually have your infrastructure as code and commit that to CI and, whoa, like, it's such a, like, a, a really good experience. It's pretty phenomenal. Um our, you know, our cloud teams definitely use a lot of Terraform for dealing with AWS. And, you know, I've done a few things. Um, we've needed to build some things that um, got deployed as EC2 instances and, uh, you know, RDS databases. And it's really cool to tie it all in, uh, you know, like update your A records in Route 53 to, you know, build out your apps. It's uh, definitely worth looking into if you haven't, which you. Yeah, for sure. So maybe now we can uh, rewind a bit and maybe just go over what your deploy process looks like, like current day. You know, let's say you want to push a change to, to this app that you've built. Like, what's the entire flow from dev to production? Sure. Um, so we are big fans of uh, feature branching. So even though there's only two of us, um, it's definitely saved our bacon a lot of times as far as making merges easier. So, you know, we'll, we'll get a feature... Uh, whether that comes from a feature request or just something that we want to implement ourselves. 
we will create a feature branch for it, do all the work, commit, 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 uh, do a pull request on that, which we'll then review in we uh, REI uses um, Atlassian's Bitbucket server. Um, so we'll review that pull request, and once that's merged into our development branch, um, a Jenkins job will kick off, which will then run the unit tests. If those pass, it will go ahead and build the Docker container and push that to our local uh, container registry. And then it will then start running the Kubernetes YAML to deploy that to um, the development or QA uh, instance. Um, yeah, that kicks off runs. We get a little ping in Slack saying, hey, job's done. And uh, that's complete. The job works basically the same way when we want to deploy to production. We just promote, uh, you know, merge in development into prod, and uh, which is the, you know, the master branch. And, you know, basically the same series of jobs with some different environment variables get kicked off and uh, they're ping and things are live. So that transition from the dev branch to master to go from your test server to production, is that automatically happening in your CI pipeline or is that just waiting for human interaction like a QA team or whatever to go over it? That one's a human interaction bit. Um, it's not every day that we deploy to you know prod. So when we have a few minor changes or we've tested them and kind of done some UAT, which is really just three or four of us like being like yep this thing works um which is not the right answer but it's what we've got you know we'll decide hey yeah we want to see this on master which you know sometimes happens more often for bug fixes than say features but um we get deployed probably weekly to to master via you know manual merge right yeah i don't think manual is like necessarily a bad thing right it's like well if you have the intermediate step where humans need need to review this thing and actually check it out in a browser before like signing off, then yeah, it's like it has to be manual because like humans aren't automatic yet. No, not yet. Soon though, hopefully. <laughs> so you mentioned uh, you have Jenkins here handling your CI process. Do you have this also running in that Kubernetes cluster, or is it off somewhere else? No, Jenkins would. Uh, our instances of Jenkins were built by our cloud team, so they're actually running off as yeah, EC2 instances with, you know, uh, dynamically uh, spun up EC2 runners as well. Um, we're using that existing uh, infrastructure because I don't want to reinvent the wheel for everything. Also, you know, when you're building a Docker container, you there's a, an added challenge of Docker in Docker when you're um, building... Um, containers from a containerized Jenkins. There's a lot of good talks out there about the ways you can do that um, in Kubernetes, um, but those also tend to limit your ability to spin up uh, new workers dynamically. So it's you know kind of a pick and choose, and it was just work that I didn't need to do, so we went with the existing uh, implementation. Right, so the best work is no work. So good choice. So how do you deal with uh, secret management with this whole setup? It's actually one of the more interesting challenges that we've had. Um, there's been a lot of discussion about different options. And I think we keep coming, circling back to using something like HashiCorp's Vault. Uh, but for right now, we're just using the built-in um, Jenkins secret management to kind of um, 
inject our secrets at uh, deploy time. Right. So, I mean, important bits like, you know, you don't have ENV files commit to version control. Right. So, you know, we've got the Jenkins secrets will get, you know, they hold things like the, the passwords for the databases, the secret key, um, the LDAP bind password, all kinds of fun stuff like that. Um, so we aren't using Helm yet to do our deployments, although that would be a pretty great way to do what we're currently doing, and we'll transition there once I get more bandwidth. But um, what we're doing right now is um, using uh, the ENV substitution uh, program to go over our Kubernetes YAML and basically replace all of the, um, the secrets in there with the ones from uh, Jenkins. Um, those are stored as Kubernetes secrets, which are then injected into the actual running uh, containers, uh, either as files mounted to the system so that you can access them, or as environment variables, depending on the uh, amount of secrecy required for that particular secret. Okay. Yeah, sounds like a, an interesting setup for now. Like that env substitute command, I remember getting some use out of that in the day, back in the day, because like Nginx doesn't officially have like a, like a templating solution, right? So you can typically like, if Nginx is containerized, like in your Docker entry point, you can do some type of substitution there. It was like an interesting way to get some like template-like functionality without needing to, you know, have a proper templating language. Right. Yeah. Helm definitely would provide all of that same feature set as what we're getting. Um, but uh, it just wasn't we weren't quite ready for that for Helm uh, when we were started our deployments. So, you know, we went with what we knew and what we could do in the uh, amount of time we had. And uh, now Helm has kind of come back and floated to the top of the backlog. Right. So maybe now just to uh, switch gears a little bit, like how have you planned for disaster recovery or unexpected events? Do you have database backups going on? Uh, anything interesting in terms of like alerting and monitoring? Uh, you kind of mentioned that, you know, things get sent over to Slack at the end of CI if things are successful, but, and also getting emailed for errors, but do you do any reporting on the cluster itself? Like, ah, this pod's at like 90% CPU usage for 10 minutes, like anything like that? Yep. We've got some of that monitoring going uh, through pretty much the same Prometheus stack. Um, when we have pods that fail repeatedly, or we have pods that are pushing the limits of their limits, um, we'll get some kind of uh, notifications through that through our, our um, internal ticketing system. We also have uh, Ansible jobs that run nightly that back up our databases um, to you know remote sources. We've got uh, quite a bit of, of stuff going on where things are uh, not stored in the same place that uh, they live. Uh, so if we do have you know a horrific event where a data center gets smacked by a meteor um we're not fully ha in that you know that aspect but i can you know redeploy to the other data center pretty quickly and my backups exist outside of all of them altogether so um we really wouldn't have too much of an issue right and now for those ansible playbooks or roles that do the database backup are you just doing like a the equivalent of like a pg dump there for whatever database you use mm-hmm um, there are Ansible modules for actually dumping all of those, which are pretty nice. Um, 
most of these are done as part of our standard kind of systems engineering system administration work anyway um, you know because we're not the only customers of these database servers so you know all of the databases get backed up in kind of a similar manner um, we are using AWX for this to kind of run our scheduled jobs which does provide us some nice um, some better visibility than say just running it as a cron job on the database host would because um, you know we can get slack notifications on failure we can you know when you log into AWX in the morning if you see a bunch of you know uh, red stoplights instead of greens uh, you know something's wrong and you can kind of poke around but um, yeah they, those work pretty well for us yeah I've seen some screenshots of that well I don't use AWX personally, but it is nice to have the ability to see that versus like, you know, crawling through some log somewhere on a server. Oh, agreed. Um, we're, a lot of our our jobs that are scheduled now, whether they involve this app specifically or just kind of anything that falls into our realm, we're moving over to that, even if it's just reaching out and calling a command, you know, a rogue, remote command to... Uh, run a script on a box then it's just great for that hey it failed message in, in slack uh, you might want to check out why the logs didn't get cleaned up on this box in the morning right now speaking about getting maybe automated messages delivered to you do you have any like external service well actually probably not because it's an internal app but do you have any service that you wrote that checks like to make sure you get a status code 200 from your internal app just to see if it's up so um Deployments we wrote for the this app have readiness checks involved in them as well as liveliness checks. So they hit certain endpoints to make sure that the app is responding in the way that we'd expect it to. Unauthenticated checks to a login endpoint give it, you know, a 302, um, or you know, unauthenticated checks give you a 302, and then you go to a um, a login endpoint. Um, so the pod, we're making sure that the pods are consistently uh, up and available. Um, if they're not, they get killed off and a new one is created in its place. And then we also track the rate at which that happens. Um, so, you know, if we're constantly killing off pods or we don't have pods coming up, we get that notification. Oh, nice. Yeah. Now, one interesting thing, I mean, I guess it's a little bit different since you have an internal app, kind of like using those external ones when I can, because it almost tests like the whole entire end-to-end -end stack of the internet. Like, is this publicly accessible domain name available to even be read. Like when you do those liveness and readiness checks with Kubernetes, does that, that's only internal to, I guess, the network in Kubernetes land? Like not so much like someone can test it in a browser? Yeah, like if somebody killed off the load balancer, we would not know about it um, in an automated way. We have, uh, or we wouldn't know about it because of that, we'd know about it because we saw, you know, connection rates or whatever drop, um, which is not something we alert on currently just because of the kind of bursty nature of our traffic. You know, sometimes nobody hits the app for for six hours and it's that's a perfectly normal day because nobody's building or updating anything or decomming, you know, hosts. And, you know, some days we get tons of traffic because managers are having a discussion about VMware licensing, who knows? Um, but I think, yeah, if setting up an internal like pingdom like service would be pretty great for that. And that's to, you know, kind of ensure that, hey, this this app's a record will actually get me to this app. Um, you know, 
and that's a, mm -hmm. that's a pretty big deal. Um, some of my you know side personal projects have that stuff. That's just not infrastructure that we have, and it's you know uh, kind of relying on yell checks for that right now. Is you know my manager is like, hey, I can't get to this app. Um, it's definitely not um, ideal, and it's definitely something to to add on as we get a chance to do it, but. I think the only reason we haven't is because it's just the two of us, and it's you know one of many cards in our sprint is is work on this thing. So, yeah, sure. So, what would you say some of your best tips and lessons learned are from building this app and the infrastructure around it? Containerization quickly is actually probably a pretty good idea. Um, you know, starting with a even something as simple as like that um, that test driven IO tutorial and just kind of setting up your base app that way and getting used to working in Docker Compose is pretty great, specifically because um, you're going to learn about separating your configuration from your app. Um, when it comes time to move into a containerized space and you have to do that, uh, that becomes a much more difficult process than just figuring out, hey, I, how do I run this container on this either remote Docker host or how do I uh, get it into Kubernetes? Um, that was one of the biggest challenges I think we had um, was kind of just cleaning up all of the stuff that we had built as we learned along the way. Um, also, you know, try not to build too much on your own. There are a lot of awesome libraries out there that might do what you want to do, uh, so they can save you a lot of time um, either doing, you know, report generation or um, adjusting the way you do many-to-many -many relationships. Um, there's a bunch of stuff out there for Django. So uh, take a look at those libraries. Okay. So speaking of those libraries, maybe do you recommend any or like what have you used in your project that those libraries really helped out? Some of the ones that we really enjoy um, that really kind of made our lives a whole lot easier uh, OpenPyXL is a great way to generate Excel sheets. I know that folks can just use Python's built-in CSV and they can open CSVs in, um, you know, in Excel, but it's really nice, to, especially for upper-level management when they get an actual Excel sheet that has some nice formatting, some cell shading, um, all the columns are the proper length of the data that they contain. Um, it's actually very easy to use. It's a pretty well-managed project, and I definitely think if you need to do anything with Excel, either reading it or writing it, you should give that a look. Um, and also, if you need to tie in Active Directory to your project, uh, Django Auth LDAP 3 AD is um, incredibly easy to use. It's really well documented, uh, and it does some nice mapping of Active Directory groups to Django groups. So you can do some really cool things there. Um, you know, if your Active Directory has 80 groups set up by business unit, you know, you can tie that in uh, so that your permissions can be managed elsewhere, and you know, you don't need to spend your time logging into uh, the admin interface and assigning people to the proper groups. Awesome. Yeah, I haven't used some of those libraries, but I will for sure make sure to link those into the show notes. Oh yeah, please do. They're they're uh, they're pretty awesome. Yep. So, Sean, thanks a lot for coming on the Running in Production podcast. It was really great having you on. It was great being here. Thank you for having me.
Yeah, anytime. So before we wrap this up, do you want to share any links to your site, Twitter, GitHub profile, anything you want? Uh, yeah, I'm Sean Calloway on GitHub. Um, working a lot in Ansible and uh, various different Python stuff over there. I'm SM Calloway on Twitter, and uh, my blog is Calloway.dev. Cool. And on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running in Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.